Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Two Under, Golf Pride, Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball. Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun. Idel Golf, hit it, flip it. Dial it in and the Mclemore Club experience live above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. Tonight, I've got two great guests to share with you that have become wonderful friends over the years. They are both former tour players, and they've had success out on the Corn Ferry and PGA Tours. We'll talk more about each of them in just a moment. Before we do that, I want to thank all of you for keeping the show inside the top five in the Podcast Magazine Hot 50 list for the month of August. Your support has been wonderful this year. Next on the T is currently ranked number three. Our football show, Thursday Night Tailgate, right now is right behind it at number four. Our goal, obviously, is to get both of those shows to leapfrog into the top two spots. So please continue to vote, and you can do so daily by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. We're so close. Your votes are all very important. I thank you for taking a moment out of your day to support the shows. It means a great deal to me. This week, I want to give a special shout out to Jake Rongholt, the weekend sports anchor over at WGEM in Quincy, Illinois. Jake, thank you for all of your support on Twitter. You're a great follow as well. So, folks, go on to Twitter and follow Jake at Jake Rongholt, R-O-N-G-H-O-L-T is the spelling of his last name. He's a great follow for all-around sports commentary. And, Jake, I really appreciate you, my friend. Okay, on to tonight's show. My first guest is going to be Bob Friend, Jr., Bob has been a wonderful friend going all the way back to episode number three of this show back in April of 2014. Tonight, I'll get his memories from winning the 1998 Panama Open, a tournament with a rich history on the Canadian Tour. I'll also get his thoughts on what's going on between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. As a guy who played out on the Corn Ferry PGA and Champions Tours, want to get Bob's insights and thoughts on What's happening now, but also looking down the road a little bit, where does he see this whole thing playing out and getting to? Looking forward to getting those thoughts. Bob's also done a bit of course design work. Want to talk about that. Plus, I want him to share memories from his father's great pitching career with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Bob Friend Sr. had a great career, so I want him to share some of those memories as well. Looking forward to having Bob back as part of the show. He'll join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from another great friend and former tour player, and that's Donnie Hammond. I'm going to get Donnie's thoughts on the live thing. Plus, we want to go back into his career and look back at the 1982 Florida Open, which he won when he was 19 years old. Also want to talk about the Open Championship. We'll go back and and talk about this year, but why St. Andrews, beyond the obvious, is one of his all-time favorite courses. Looking forward to having Donnie back here with me. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight.
Before we get started, I want to remind you about our good friends up at the Macklemore. As you guys know, my buddies and I were there again this year for our annual golf trip, and it was even better the second time around. Everything about what they have up there is first class. The accommodations are wonderful. The practice facility is great, and now even greater since they opened up their new Himalayas putting course. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig is outstanding food and service. And to say the course is spectacular is an understatement. Can't say enough great things about the place, folks. Go online to themacklemore.com to see for yourself how great it is. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones, our friend and PGA Tour caddy, and one of my recent guests, Kip Henley. Since outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. Golf Digest agreed, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000, and Lynx Magazine doubled down on that, naming it one of the top 10 finishing holes in all of golf. See why we're all saying such great things about it by going online to themaclamore.com. And tonight I want to continue to welcome a new sponsor to the show, Fresh Clean Tees. Want 20% off the world's softest, comfiest, and best-fitting men's clothes? Fresh Clean Tees has your back, your front, and your sides. With everything from tees to tanks and henleys to pullovers, polos, and hoodies. Get designer quality basics without paying ridiculous designer prices. Everyone deserves to look good and feel great. Confidence shouldn't cost a fortune. Go to FreshCleanTees.com today. Your perfect fit awaits. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade. Golf's an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why TaylorMade made the all-new Stealth Irons. TaylorMade Stealth Irons feature a cap-back design and a 3D toe wrap designed to help deliver increased distance through the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional, or maybe not so occasional, less than perfect shots. The result? Better shots more often, so you get to have more fun more often. So if you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, try the all-new Stealth Irons from TaylorMade, Beyond Driven. All right, now back, and I'm honored to say this, for the 16th time is one of my all-time favorite guests, Bob Friend Jr., Bob first joined me back in April of 2014 on episode number three of this show, and he's been a great friend and a great guest ever since then. Let me remind you about his background. He's from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, played his college golf at LSU, where he helped them win the 1986 SEC championship. Bob had 11 career top 10 finishes while he was at LSU. He won the Western Pennsylvania Amateur Championship in 1984 and 85, and the Pennsylvania State Championship as well in 85. He turned pro in 1987, and he played out on the Corn Ferry, PGA, and Champions Tours. He had five top 10 finishes his rookie year on the Corn Ferry Tour, including a second-place finish at the El Paso Open. Got his first win at the 1991 Fort Wayne Open. In 1998, Bob won the Panama Open and finished second in the Canadian Open. Over the course of his playing career, he's finished in the top 10 27 times. In 2003, Bob's high school, Fox Chapel, inducted him into their Hall of Fame. If you're a baseball fan, you'll remember Bob's father, Bob Friend Sr. He pitched in the major leagues from 1951 to 1966, mostly with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and was a key member of their 1960 World Series championship team that beat the New York Yankees. I'm very honored to have Bob back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bob, thanks for coming back on the show. Well, Chris, I'm delighted to be here. Hard to believe 16 times, but uh, I'll come back anytime you ask me, Chris. I appreciate you, Bob. 
And it's been a minute, my friend, since we got to have you as part of the show. Catch us up. What's been going on with you so far in 22? Well, so far in 22, I got, uh, you know, you sit there and you play the game of golf. It's very entrepreneurial. Uh, you sit there and you, 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 you turn professional. For me, it was 1987. And from 1987 to 2003, I was my own boss. Um, and so you kind of get that entrepreneurial bent. And then, so I worked for about 12 years. You, you spoke about, I had a little bit of design work at Pikewood National Golf Club in Morgantown, West Virginia. Um, but I worked for a privately held company for 12 years, 11 and a half, 12 years. And then I got back into, then I got back into the entrepreneurial bent with real estate. And I was a very successful real estate agent for Howard Hanna Real Estate Services. Howard Hanna is the largest family-owned real estate company in the United States. And although we only have offices in 14 states, we are the third largest realtor in the United States. So we, we get after it. And so after a very successful career as an agent, uh, the company named me manager of the Squirrel Hill office. And I managed 15 agents um, in basically a city office. And it's a wonderful office, a lot of great agents. And I am busier been a one-legged man in a rear-end kicking contest. So it's uh, every day it's real estate. I've got wonderful agents, and I'm, I basically work six or seven days. So it's very similar to playing tournament golf. Bob, let's take that back to your playing days out on tour, because when I talk with your contemporaries about you, they all say you're a grinder, a dig-it-out-of-the-dirt kind of player. Talk about taking your talent, just like you do in the real estate business, but your talent when you were playing out on tour and matching that up with your desire to outwork everybody else. Well, for number one, I, I wear that I wear that badge as a badge of honor. Um, you know, my father, uh, you know, we can talk about his career here in a little bit. My father instilled to me the the essence of work ethic. You know, the the, the good Lord gives each one of us a certain amount of talent and 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 any field that you that you desire um but your talent gets you literally about 10 percent of the way and what you're willing to do and work is going to get you the other 90 percent of the way so for me um i just i i I was a grinder i absolutely i I refused to be the first i refused to not be the first one in the range and i refused to be the last one i refused not to be the last one in the range i mean so much so that you know when i was at lsu uh, you know, we'd get to playing a tournament round. I'd be out there beating balls, and my teammates would all be piled into the van waiting for me. And eventually, before it got dark, my coach would come out, and he, he always, my coach was Buddy Alexander there, and he always said, Pards, if you didn't bring it with you, you're not going to find it now. Um, but I, I was. I worked my rear end off uh, at everything that I've ever done. Um, it's just kind of how I'm, how I'm wired. And, and I, had some, I had some talent. Obviously, there's some athletic genes in the body. Uh, but for the most part, I was competing against guys that had a lot more talent than I had. And I just, I just felt that what I had to do was basically outwork everybody. And I did. Um, you know, I, I go back and you take a look on your career. And, um, you know, the only guy that might have hit more balls than me at the time, you know, might have been like a VJ Singh. Because I know that uh, if, when the sun was up, I was out working at it. When the sun went down, I was just leaving. So it, it was a lot of work. Um, but I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, I got the game bit me when I was 13. When I was 14, they played the PGA Championship at Oakmont Country Club in 1978. I caddied for a club professional from Olathe, Kansas, by the name of John Bonella. Nice man, 
didn't play very well that week. Um, but he was, he was friends with Stan Thirsk and Tom Watson. And so we played our practice rounds on Wednesday, Thursday, I'm sorry, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of the 78 PGA with Tom Watson and Andy North, who at the time was U.S. Open champion. And I never forget my dad on Monday morning after the tournament was over. My dad at the time was in the insurance brokerage business. And uh, he said, so what'd you think? And I just said, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And that's what I want to do when I grow up. My father's like, well, go get it. And so I, the, the Lord has blessed me with some ability. Uh, he had blessed me most importantly with two great parents, uh, that basically supported the dream that I had. And, uh, you know, the kind of like the re- the rest is history. Bob, I want to take a couple of things that you just mentioned there and expound on them a little bit. First, at 78 PGA, I had John Mahaffey on the show a couple of weeks ago. Great Talk guy. about what you Great remember guy. about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, so what I remember about that, again, the, the, the three practice rounds, I was inside the ropes with Tom Watson. Um, the, what, what impressed me was the controlled violence that he hit the golf ball, literally like he just, he swung out of his shoes in a controlled way. And, you know, you heard the sound. It was impressive. Everything was solid. And when you looked up, the ball was already just like a little dot in the sky. I mean, the ball got out of there really fast. So that impressed me. Um, I also remember, you know, and John, John became a friend. When I was out on tour, always respected John. I always held him in high regard because John's kind of a gunslinger type of guy. Very, 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 very tough. Uh, like a Lee Van Cleef. You know, he's, you know, the, his Pete Townsend, uh, you know, re- related to, you know, cowboys and, and very narrow eyes in one of his songs. And, um, you know, he was kind of a gunslinger, very, very tough guy, Hogan disciple. And Tom Watson had a six shot lead going into the back nine on the fourth round. Mahaffey birdied 10. Watson doubled 10 and in in one hole there was a three shot swing and it was game on i think john ended up shooting 66 the final round and won in the first three-way playoff in the history of the pga championship with jerry pate tom watson and obviously john mahaffey who won a really slick downhill putt on the second playoff hole on number two so it was just one of those seminal moments. And then I, as I got out there on tour, you know, John, and he was, like I said, he was always gracious, always very nice. Um, you know, I made sure when I, when I introduced myself to him and I was a member at Oakmont and his face lit up, he said, I've got some wonderful memories of Oakmont. He said, it's basically seminal moment of my career. And, um, you know, I just, I, I just look back and I'm just so blessed. Uh, you know, I was a journeyman, uh, and that's okay. You know, you take a look at it. You take a look around and you see, you know, maybe 35 to 40 million men play the game of golf. I was one of 150 that played on the PGA Tour, not just for one year, but for five years. And I got to play with my heroes and, you know, I, I consider them friends now and um, just really, really blessed. But John Mahaffey and that 78 PGA was a seminal moment in my life, being inside the roast with Tom Watson. Then obviously John Mahaffey winning, that was a seminal moment in his life as well. You also mentioned Buddy Alexander, your coach there at LSU. Buddy would also go on to coach at Florida. Talk about the impact that Buddy had on you. Best coach in college golf at the time. Uh, Buddy was a great player. Buddy won the U.S. Amateur in 1986. Now, I was a fifth-year senior, so my eligibility ran from the fall of 82 through May of 86. I went back 
uh, in the fall of 86 to get my degree. So wh- I actually played in U.S. Amateur there. And, and, and it's a little bit of a bittersweet thing. You know, obviously my golf coach won the golf tournament, but I was, I was being considered for the U.S. Walker Cup team. Uh, in 19, you know, eight as you were late in, in your, in your interview, in your, in your lead up to the interview. Um, I won the Western Pennsylvania Amateur in 84 and 85, the state, the state Amateur in 85. I qualified for the U.S. Open as a 20 year old amateur. I played four straight U.S. Amateurs, 83, 4, 5, and 6. And then in 86, I had this breakout year that really gave me the confidence to turn professional, where I won the Monroe Invitational in Rochester, New York. The next week, I won the Northeast Amateur by seven. And then later in the year, I won the Mid-Atlantic Amateur with a bunch of other top five and top ten finishes in major amateur tournaments. And I missed the cut at Joel Creek by a shot. Now, had I made the, had I made match play, I probably would have made the U.S. Walker Cup team because my, my bona fides were very, very strong. Uh, missed the cut, ended up coming back, and then we actually watched Buddy as a team win the United States Amateur that year against Chris Kite. So Buddy was always a very accomplished player. His father was a former Ryder Cupper. Buddy was one of those coaches, and he really taught us how to play. He wasn't a quote-unquote swing coach. He was a play coach. And he had so much knowledge when it came to managing your game, managing the golf course. Um, a lot of the things that he did, like one of the things he always used to do is that we used to, we used to like, uh, have like these little contests about, uh, who had the best move to the hole where you go and you're picking the ball out. And we'd getting in these elaborate contests where you're making all these body gestures and these gyrations to get the golf ball out of the hole. But the whole thing, when you go back and you think about it, his whole idea was something that was even as silly as that was just the idea is that get used to picking that ball out of the hole. And so Buddy was an unbelievable coach when it came to playing. Uh, a lot of great, great ideas in terms of game management, course management. But he, he, he also treated us like men. And, um, you know, I'll never forget when we won the Southeastern Conference against Florida, beat Florida by a shot. And we were sitting in the van. We had a two-shot lead going in the final round. And Buddy made the comment, we were about ready to pour out of the van to get loosened up and get ready to go for play for the day. He said, after we win today, I want you guys to go and shake hands with second place, and I want you to act like you expected to be there. He didn't say if we win. He said after we win. So it was just one of those little things where he had enough golf sports psychology, and it's just a lot of the lessons that he taught myself and Emlyn Aubrey, who played on tour for eight years, obviously David Toms. Uh, who's had a wonderful career, a lot of that sort of stuff that stuck with me for the rest of my life. Bob, I want to fast forward a little bit to the 1998 Panama Open that you won. It's a tournament that has a rich history. A lot of great legends won down there. Guys like George Burns, Curtis Strange, Bruce Fleischer, Chichi Rodriguez, Roberto DiVincenzo, just to name a few that won that golf tournament. Talk about going down there and getting that big win. Well, it was uh, it was early in the year. I, I, I shot 63 in December of 97 to get my card back on the number, which at the time and now to this day is still the lowest round shot, the final round of PGA Tour qualifying, um, to get your card back on the number. So it was a, it was a seminal event, shooting 63 at, at Greenleaf. And I, I didn't get in. I think at the, at the time, I think um, Hawaii was the first time I did not get into Hawaii. Uh, I, I can't remember what I finished in PGA Tour Golf. I was down towards the bottom, again, shooting 63 to just barely get in. So I had to find somewhere to play, and I had played down in the Panama Open um, at El Coronado 
which was a George Fazio design. And um, I went down there and I just thought, you know, I got I got to I got to, you know, I got to do something. And so uh, I want to get my my competitive juice flowing. So I went down there and um, I ended up winning the golf tournament and I won thirty thousand dollars winning the golf tournament. I shot 57 the last round and won. And it what it did was it, it basically gave me, you know, you already have a lot of confidence when you get your PGA Tour card. And then you go down there and you play, and you're playing against other guys who just got their cards. You're playing against guys at that time were on the Nike Tour and uh, or Hogan Tour, and you're like, yeah, you know, and you sit there and you go down there and you win, and you're like, yeah, I, yeah, I got it going. And so basically, anytime you win, it's going to build your confidence. It kind of feeds on itself. And as it turned out, I ended up having the best year of my career in 1998. But that tournament, the Panama Open, uh, also qualified me for the Subaru World Open, Gene Saracen Subaru World Open, later in the year in Braceton, Georgia. And I finished the top 10 there and made another $47,000 playing there. And so that tournament, literally 30000 there and $47,000 at uh, the Subaru World Open was worth forty. Was worth seventy seven thousand dollars that year, so it was a nice catch. Bob, I want to switch it up a little bit, and live golf is the main topic of discussion around the game right now. If Greg Norman had the Saudi money backing him back in the nineties, and he had approached you with a sizable sign on offer, what would your reaction have been? It's a great question, and it's a difficult question to answer. Again, if I look at if 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 Greg Norman approaches me. And at that time, I'm sitting there and I'm bouncing around the bottom and, and, you know, having a few top tens and this, that, and the other. It comes to me and says, I'm going to offer you $25 million to play in this thing. And I would, I, it would be very, very difficult for me to turn down. I'll be honest with you because it's the time you're raising a family, this, that, and the other. Here's what I don't understand. I don't get the guys that have already made tens of millions of dollars playing the game of golf to go and play in this thing. Um, I, again, I take a look at Ernie L's comments, and I, and I love Ernie. Ernie's a great guy, and his comments are his comments are true. He said, "So you're playing a 54, 54 hole tournament with no cut. I mean, how are you going to be remembered in the game for that?" And the answer is, you're not. And basically, what they're doing is they're chasing the dollars. Now, look, I get the guys um, that have like they've had like pretty good careers. They've won a little bit of money, this, that, and the other. And they, they, they dangle this, this change in front of you. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'll, this is like generational wealth. The guys like Dustin Johnson, the guys like Phil Mickelson, the guys like Bryson DeChambeau, it's like, really? And I think that John Rahm made a great quote. He said, look, he said, right now, if I never put another stool in the ground and play another round of golf, he said, I've created enough generational wealth. Well, I'll never have to worry about it. It's not going to. It's not going to change my life in a bit if I sign for another three hundred million dollars, whatever it might be. So I, I take a look. It, again, it depends. You know, I, I see the I see the journeyman guys and new guys coming out. You're trying to get a start, trying to build a reputation. Trying, you got to be able to make some money. This, that, and the other. I get it. But for the guys that have already like you know, again, Dustin Johnson. I don't know who handles his money, but Dustin Johnson's got to have pretty close to a hundred million dollars in the bank before he took this. And for him to do this, it's just kind of like, really, really. So I'm not a fan. Of, and I'll tell you right now, I'm not a fan of Greg Norman. Um, I, I I played a I played a match against Greg Norman for a uh, real estate development down in Shark Tooth Golf Club. We played 
uh, nine holes with myself and Greg and the golf professional, six or 700 property owners. We were selling real estate down there. It was my first year out of golf. Norman got on the 10th tee. Norman said, okay, we're going to play. Each of us will put up 20 bucks. Low guy gets 20 bucks. Well, I shot, I shot three under par in the back nine. We only played nine holes. Norman shot 36. The golf coach shot 37. Not only did Norman not pay me, Norman never shook my hand on the 18th grain. Left me wow. hanging there. So I really don't have a, I really don't hold him in very high regard. And this is not the first time he's done this with the PGA Tour. In my opinion, I think the PGA Tour is one of the greatest organizations in the world. You take a look at the charitable giving. You take a look at what the, what the, the PGA Tour, the platform that they, that they have provided for these guys that are playing the game that they love to produce tens of millions of dollars. I'm not a big fan of it. So let's look at a guy like Cam Smith, just coming off an open championship. He won the players, obviously, this year. They've asked him about it as we get ready to, to start the FedEx Cup playoffs. If he's already signed, as the rumor has it, that he's going to go over there potentially after the President's Cup. Here's a guy that's got an open championship. If if the four majors don't stand behind Jay Monahan and, you know, Say, hey, if you're playing on the Live Tour, you are no longer eligible to play in the PGA Championship, the Masters, et cetera. If that doesn't happen, Cam Smith has now got a got an exemption for at, at a minimum of five years. He's young enough to probably win another major somewhere along there to reset the clock. Is he a guy that could have his cake and eat it too? Hey, I get hundreds of millions to sign on. I'm going to go over there and make more money every week because there's no cut and everyone gets paid. And I've got a major in my back pocket that says I can go play really in the four tournaments to make the, the biggest difference for those folks that care about being remembered in the game of golf. Is he a guy that could really double dip? No, I think that Cam Smith is make, would make a monumental error playing on the live tour because I do think exactly what you're going to say. I think the PGA of America is going to hold true with the PGA tour. USGA is kind of, they're, they're going to be, well, it's an open. So they have, they have their out. But I think that if, I think of Augusta National, goes to these guys that jump and say, you know what, I'm sorry. PJ Tour's been a long time partner since 1934. Um, we're sticking with them. You're no longer welcome. I think that that changes everything. But when you take a look at a guy like Cam Smith, who's not a Kevin Na, no knock on Kevin Na. He's had a wonderful career. Cam Smith has the opportunity to go down in history as one of the great, all time greats. You're not going to go down in history as an all-time great if you're playing 54-hole events with no cut. You're only going to go down in history if the finest competition under the fiercest fire and you end up winning golf tournaments under that. That is how you become an all-time great. You don't do it by being on the live tour. I'm sorry. It's a money tour. The only allure of the whole thing is money, and that's all it is. The PGA Tour, the money is fantastic, but the cream comes to the top. If you play well, you make more money, and you have the opportunity to have your name etched in history. And I think it would be a mistake for Cameron Smith to, to chase these dollars when he has the opportunity to do something really, really special and be known as one of the all-time greats, especially in the name of like a, a, a Peter Thompson. I'm not even going to say Greg Norman, because Greg Norman... Great career. I'm not again. He had hit. You know, he couldn't. I, I probably couldn't caddy for Greg Norman. But the fact of the matter is, Greg Norman, with all that immense talent, won two majors. Only won two majors. Cam Smith has, has the opportunity 
to do something that's so far beyond what, what Greg Norman did in the game of golf. It'd be a mistake for him to go to live tour. Bob, when, when we have a rival tour, maybe not necessarily as we look at the PGA tour, but in other sports, when we've seen, you know, rivals come up to the NFL with the USFL and that sort of thing, there's always something to be gained or learned by what some other rival is doing. And one of the things that I think the live tour is getting right is, is the fact that, you know, guys are at least getting paid every week. And I'm not saying a hundred thousand dollars, which, uh, which I think is what last place gets over there on the LIV tour. But, you know, as a guy like you, there was a grinder out there battling to make cuts week after week and looking for sponsors and people to back you in order to cover expenses. One thing I think the PGA Tour, and this is just Chris's opinion, has has really needed to take a look at is paying the players that show up, even if it's just for the expense money. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you and I would do in our business expenses, you know, for travel and hotels and that sort of thing, even if you had to fill that out. I know that the PGA Tour is the ultimate meritocracy, but is that something that the PGA Tour needs to take a look at? Because if you're a big name player or someone who is special to me like you are, if you were playing in a in a tournament around me, I would go just to see Bob Friend play golf. And if you didn't make the cut, you're out whatever whatever the expenses were that week, you're out that money. So you bring player or people fans like me out to see I think I think the tour needs to take a look at at least give the guys their expense money back versus being out, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars every week when you're not making cuts. I don't know. Am I way off base on that? No, you no, Chris, you're actually not way off base. I think the PGA tour is to do two things. I think number one, I don't have a problem with every single guy that plays that week gets paid something. You know, last place gets five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, or at least you're covering your expenses. Number two, the PGA tour needs to take a look at their uh, defined benefit program or deferred compensation program with their pension. So look, I played on the PGA Tour for five years. Remember the PGA Tour for five years. Now my fifth year, which had been 1993, so 92, 93, 98, 99, 2000, my fifth year, 1993, I was in the 126 to 150 category. It's a full member of the PGA Tour, but it wasn't fully exempt. So to be fully exempt, you have to have 15 tournaments and then that counts as a year. Now, what I was doing is that I was, you know, at that time, you always want to take a look. You know, the goal is to be on the PGA Tour full exempt for the next year. So 1993, I'm playing on conditional status, okay? And I, you know, you call the tour and say, okay, my number's going to be, my number's going to be Q school plus three was my number. So, so the Q school guys, I'm the third guy in after all that's been exhausted. And I asked the guy, his name was Cliff Holtzclaw, I said, how many tournaments should I get in this year? He said, well, based upon last year, he said, you should get anywhere from, you know, 20 to 22 tournaments. I'm like, great, great. Well, as the year goes on, wow, I'm really not getting a whole lot of tournaments. And so I started playing on the Nike Tour. And then I had like some top three finishes on the Nike Tour that year. And I'm thinking, okay. And I sat down with my wife at the time. I was newly, newly married. I said, we, we got a decision to make. I said, do I go full gun here and say, you know what, heck with it. I'm going to try to finish in the top top 15 of the Nike Tour, be fully exempt for next year. Or whenever I get in the PGA Tour, go and play there and, you know, make, make some money, maybe make some more money. Now, I chose, which a lot of guys did at this time that were on the bubble like I was, to play the Nike Tour. Thinking, okay, great. I'm going to go and I'm going to play. I'm going to play this. I'm going to focus on this. I'll finish in the top 15, and I will be fully exempt next year. 
Well, what happened was is that I ended up playing in 11 tournaments that year, and but I probably had five or six other opportunities that I said, you know what, I'm sorry, it's the same week as the Nike Tour event. Thanks, but I'm not going to play this week. I'm going to focus on the Nike Tour. Now, later, the PGA Tour put in another deferred compensation program, which is five years, 15 cuts a year, and you get a pension. Well, had I known that in 1993, I never would have played a single tournament on the Nike Tour that was opposite a PGA Tour event because of thinking, well, I got to make sure I get my 15 starts in for my pension. So here's what I think, and I, your points are very valid. Number one, I think that they should start paying guys a minimum if they play that week. Five, ten, five thousand, ten thousand, whatever it is, cover your cost. Number two, they need to rework these quote unquote PGA Tour pension programs for Major League Baseball. My father pitched. You had to be vested for 12 years. 12 years. You had to play 12 years in Major League to be fully vested. Now you play one game and you have some type of a pension major league baseball. The pension program, deferred compensation program at the PGA Tour is large enough now where if you play one season on the PGA Tour, you should get some type of a pension. Just like other sports, keep it in line with other sports. So I think that if anything good comes from this live tour, I think it'll be like, okay, good. You know what? You remember the PGA Tour? We're going to guarantee you every tournament you play, we're going to give you $10,000 or $15,000, whatever it might be. And you play one full year in the PGA Tour, 15 years, 15 events, makes a year, you've got a pension. And I think that that would make a lot of people satisfied. Bob, just a couple more before I let you go. And uh, we've both sure. mentioned it so far, but you've done some design work. You did some work there at Pikewood National Golf Club. Is that something you'd like to do more of? Well, you know what, honestly, at this, at this stage of my game, if, if anybody, you know, if anybody came to me and, you know, we're all kind of amateur architects. I mean, I'm a, I'm a longtime member at Oakmont Country Club. Gil Hans is going to come to Oakmont and we're going to do nine holes. Um, we're going to, we're going to do nine holes starting from March 1st of 2023. Um, and then at, uh, we'll close that and then we play the back nine and the back nine is going to be closed. Uh, right after verification in August and opens up the brand new golf course, revamp with the best features throughout the 120, 119 years, um, in, in Memorial Day of 2024, right before a year before the U.S. Open. So it's one of those things where I've got, uh, I've got one guy that uh, a good friend of mine owns a golf course in Greensburg and he said, I want you to come out there and take a look at it. So in terms of like coming out and making suggestions, Absolutely. I, I know what I'm doing. I know, I know a heck of a lot about the game of golf. And I also know that there are certain things that you can do to improve a golf course that are basically cost effective. But I'm right now, what I'm doing is I'm really focusing on, I'm really focusing on the real estate business. I play golf, uh, you know, probably once or twice a week out at Oakmont. I enjoy it. I love it. But, you know, that stage in my life is like, you know what? It was great. I loved it. I've got a very high golf IQ. But right now, I'm focusing on uh, on making my real estate offer the best it can be. And, Bob, I want to give you a minute to talk about your father. He was such a great baseball player. Uh, he was a four-time All-Star. He was the first pitcher to lead the league in ERA for a last-place team and obviously was a major factor in the Pirates beating the Yankees in the 1960 World Series. Talk about him. Best man I've ever met. I, I was blessed to have him. He died at the age of 88, 2019. Um, he died in his sleep. I talked to him the day before. We we're going to watch Super Bowl on February 3rd, 2019. 
And, uh, you know, he passed away in his sleep. If I could draw it up the same way, I would. Had him for 55 years. My three kids, Charlie, Libby, and Andrew, are 26, 24, 22. He was their best buddy. Um, as a pitcher, he was, he never missed a start. Pitched over 12 years without missing a start. Uh, over 3,611 innings over his 16 year career. Um, great fastball, but most importantly, he was a guy that, uh, when Buddy Alexander first got to LSU, he asked the baseball coach, a guy named Joe by the name of Jack LeMabe, and Jack had played with my dad. He was a utility player, bounced around the league a little bit. And Buddy asked Jack about my dad. This is the, the probably the best thing I've ever, the, probably the most true Dave never heard about my dad. So Jack told him, he said, well, he said, a great fastball, a lot of movement on the fastball, pretty good curveballs, changeup was okay. He said it was very durable. He said, but I'll tell you what. He said, if you crowded that plate, he said, he would put a ball in your mouth and not think twice about it and then invite you out for beer after the game. He said, he literally is <laughs> one of the nicest men you'd ever want to meet, said, but you wouldn't want to meet him crowding the plate. So he was just, he, his nickname was Warrior. And, um, he was just, he was just the very best man I've ever met. Every, if you were to draw up a man and this is what a man has to be, that would be my dad. So I, I he was just, I loved him to death. He was funny. He was fun. Uh, he was my biggest supporter. I, I am half, I, I couldn't, I'm not half the man that he is. And, um, I miss him every single day, but I, I just, I think about him and I laugh and I smile because he was just such a wonderful guy. Bob, before I let you go, you've talked about the real estate business, but let our listeners know if they're up in that area, how they can, uh, work with you and then also stay in touch with all the great things that you're doing over social media. Yeah, so we basically, uh, I am on Instagram. I think it's, uh, Bob Friend Realtor, uh, on Instagram. And I, I actually was on Twitter. When, when Twitter started censoring people, I just thought, I, I just it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. So I pulled my Twitter stuff, but I'm on howardhanna.com forward slash Bob Friend. And again, we are the largest real estate company in the city of Pittsburgh in the state of Pennsylvania. Allegheny County, largest family-owned real estate company in the United States, and uh, give me a call at 412-576-3444. Remember, it's a great day to look at a house. It's an even better day to buy a house. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Bob, I love you, my friend. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. It's always a privilege to get to spend time with you. I hope I get to do it again soon. All the best, Chris. Thanks so much. Continued success to you. I appreciate you, Bob. Take care, my friend. We'll catch up soon. Bye, right, buddy. See you, Bob. That is the great Bob friend and folks, just a, a wonderful individual. He has been such a wonderful guest over the years. Always have a great time with him. Always learn an awful lot when he's a part of the show, hearing stories from his career, plus the insights that he has about the PGA Tour and other things. Just a wonderful individual, great family, and uh, I just I, I can't thank him enough. Sixteen times that tells you everything you need to know about Bob Friend. So hopefully we get the privilege of having him back on the show again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Donnie Hammond, I want to remind you about a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Adele Golf. Is your driver adjustable? Of course it is. How about your irons? Didn't think so. Adele's new SMS irons give you adjustability in an iron to match your swing. These new irons come with three weights lined up across the back of the club, 
By moving the heavyweight to the heel, center, or toe location, you can match the club to your swing instead of vice versa. The result? Total control of the club face for more distance and accuracy. Your irons can't do this. Check them out online by going to adelgolf.com. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. Okay, now back in making his 10th appearance with me is Donnie Hammond. Let me remind you about Donnie's background. He was born in Frederick, Maryland, which is in the northern part of the state near the Virginia and West Virginia borders. Played his college golf at Jacksonville University, where he was a four-year letterman. As a sophomore, he finished seventh in the 1977 Sunbelt Championship. Then as a senior, he won it by six strokes. He would go on to lead Jacksonville University to two Sunbelt Conference Championships. He's a charter member of their Sports Hall of Fame. Donnie earned his tour card by being the medalist at the 1982 PGA Tour Qualifying Tournament at TBC Sawgrass, winning that tournament by a record 14 strokes. He played on the PGA Tour from 1983 to 1998. He won twice on the regular tour at the 1986 Bob Hope Chrysler Classic and the 1989 Texas Open, where he came within one stroke of the all-time scoring record after shooting a four-round total of 258 at Oak Hill. He won once on the Corn Ferry Tour at the 2000 Lakeland Classic. Donnie also won the 1982 Florida Open. Over the course of his career, he's had 42 top 10 finishes, and he's made the cut 70% of the time that he's teed it up. And I'm honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Donnie, thanks for coming back on the show. Chris, you got it. Nice to be on with you. Donnie, it's a... It's a strange time in our game. At least this is the strangest thing I've seen in my lifetime. We've got a rival tour buying players. If they were, you know, playing out on the PGA tour and it was all monopoly money is kind of what it's feeling like these days. And those players coming back and they're doing the PGA tour. So they were trying to get into the FedEx cup playoffs and boy, it just, it's, it's crazy to me, Donnie. What, what are your thoughts about what you're seeing? Well, I like the decision yesterday from the court that said, you guys are making more money on the live tour than you would have made even if you're playing the FedEx championship. So we're not going to let you go over on that tour. Knowing that you would have been suspended from the PGA tour, it was very clear. You know, a hundred million people knew that if guys played on the live tour, they were going to get suspended on the PGA tour. So they knew what the program was, but they said, you know, I guess 20 or 40 million is not quite enough. We want to come in and take up a spot on the FedEx tour. So. Uh, that was a great decision for the tour, you know, now at this point, but going forward, it's going to, you know, it's probably going to get uglier as we go, but that's, um, you know, it's kind of what Greg Norman likes to do is muck things up. So, Donnie, speaking of just FedEx, the company FedEx, 
Does the tour have a problem? You know, they're pointing the finger at the at the live tour because it's backed with this Saudi money. And and here we now have probably the tour's largest sponsor in FedEx going over there and investing four hundred million dollars in Saudi Arabia to launch a business over there, put the put down a, a foundation and, and get things going. Does does Monahan have a another headache because he's got his largest sponsor investing four hundred million over there? Yeah, it doesn't help. It, I don't think it helps, but companies, you know, they kind of relate to their shareholders. That's what the CEO looks at is, is what do the shareholders want? What's best for, you know, the people that own our company? What's best for our business going forward the next 10 years? Um, you know, that's around the world. It doesn't seem like companies are quite looking at it in a more of a humanitarian type way on how we're going to do business, who we're going to do business with. It just seems to be a little bit more of a greedy world these days where it's just the bottom line is is what's the most important thing, not looking to the future and what's the important thing for the world. I mean, that's gone on in our country for the last five years or so. It's it's gotten kind of dismal uh, in my view. And Donnie, I'm hearing that a women's live tour is a done deal. Can the LPGA survive if that comes about? That would be that would put more pressure on the LPGA than it would on the PGA Tour. The you know they're you know the kind of money they're floating around with with the PGA Tour players, the men. You know you could get you could get maybe six of the top ten on the LPGA, but you know I don't know I don't know the the I don't think the TV is quite there with the ladies that they're gonna that they're gonna lose you know some of the sponsors on their tour. Because, you know, they lose half of their top 10. They, they've gotten deeper the last couple of years with talent out there and they have a lot of really good players. But it, I think it would be a little tougher on the LPGA than it's going to be on the PGA tour. Donnie, let's switch gears a little bit. And on your website, DonnieHammondGolf.com, there's a picture of you and your lovely wife in front of a picture of the 13th hole at Augusta National. We know about your 11th place finish there in 1986. You made the cut three other times from 87 to 91. Are you in front of a picture of Augusta National just because it happened to be a picture hanging on the wall where you are out somewhere? Or does that really have a special place in your heart? That must have been a total coincidence because I don't kind of, I don't know, I don't look back too much on things like that. I'm not too sentimental, I don't think you'd say. So it was probably an accident. But now that you mentioned it, that's a pretty sweet spot down there on 13. Actually, when I, before I even went to college, my dad and I made it there and he got us a job working at the Masters. I'm a senior in high school. That's the hole that we worked on. I worked right out by, by the trees up there to the right, those big pines that Nicholson yeah. did from behind that one year. I, I worked right there on that uh, spot. And, you know, I was on my way to Jacksonville University to look at the school and that's where we stopped. First. So that's pretty interesting that uh, that the 13th uh, would come up like that. Looks like they're redoing the course a little bit. Yeah, I saw some pictures, uh, at least what it what looked like they were finally moving the tees back on 13. What do you think about that if they were to add, you know, 20, 30, 40 yards of length to the tee? I think it'd make it a better hole because it seems like, you know, the last couple of years, guys are hitting, you know, five irons into that hole. So it's it's really playing like a par four. You get guys, you know, that are driving it out there 300, 310. Uh, I think it would make it a better hole. I'd like to see the shots coming in there with 
220, you know, back when we used to have to play it, have to take a five wood or maybe a two iron, try to get a two iron high and get it over that creek, raised creek there. So that would definitely make it a better hole. Uh, you wouldn't see quite as many eagles, but you'd see a lot more bogeys than you would eagles, I would think, uh, with, with that setup. Donnie, you list St. Andrews as one of your favorite golf courses. Looking back to last month's Open Championship, Cam Smith obviously winning at 20 under par. Guys were driving on or right up to the greens with regularity. We didn't get the winds or the bad weather that we're used to seeing during an Open Championship. Do we chalk up the scoring just based on the luck of the week and the great weather that they had? Or is that another golf course that needs to consider adding more length for when the Open Championship comes back around in the rotation? I mean, there's there's limited chances to make that course longer, though. There there are a few holes, I think, they'd be able to stretch it out 10 or 15 yards. But I think this year it was more, the course was so dry. I mean, those balls were rolling 50, 60 yards because of the drought over there in um, in the UK. And, you know, guys were driving more of the par fours than they normally would. So that was a key, key factor. Uh, the weather was great. There wasn't high winds. There wasn't you know, weather that we would get where you'd have to you'd put your rain suit on in the hotel in the morning and head to the golf course and you wouldn't take it off the rest of the day. And that's in July. You know, so that that was that was a good week. Actually, the one week I played there, I think I finished eighth. I walked off the green and I was thinking, I think I just did something I'll never do in a British Open again, which is I never wore a sweater and I never shot over par. I'm thinking I'll never do that. So that was kind of like the week that we had this year where, um, you know, guys could go out and Cam, Cam Smith played fantastic. I mean, what a, what a week he had, but, but a lot of guys, you know, shot a lot under par that week and it was, you know, the dryness and the light winds and not a lot of, you know, rainy weather. So beyond the obvious with St. Andrews being the home of golf, is there something else about it that makes it your favorite? I guess the big, you know, the big RNA building right behind the first tee there. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. And, you know, the street going up 18 there, you just, um, you know, you got to walk up, up the street there and into the town a little bit, get fish and chips one night. I stayed at the St. Andrews Hotel, which was, had just been redone a year or two earlier. And it was, it was fantastic. I, I don't think I even left the hotel that much except for one or two nights, maybe. It was in, I was in the, you know, living the life of luxury in that hotel. But when you walk into town, it's just the people, you know, it's just there's a buzz going on every week of a British Open, no matter what town you're in. And most of the people are there. Maybe a lot of the people there that are out at night are there for the tournament that week. They're coming in on the train and they're, you know, staying for the week and they're excited. They're going to be at the golf course for eight or 10 hours that next day watching golf. And it's just that tournament is really special. The, the atmosphere on the course and in the evenings is, is unlike anything, you know, that I've ever played in. Donnie, going back in your career, you won the 1982 Florida Open when you were 19 years old. You did so coming from four strokes back of Kip Byrne, who played out of a neighboring town near you, and he was over in Winter Springs. You birdied 11. 12 and 14 on your way to a final round 67 to clip him by a stroke. Talk about getting your career jump started really with a big win like that. Yeah, that was, you know, that was when I started, started playing pretty good. I think I was a little older than that though. That, I think that was the summer 
right before I got my tour card. So I might have been about 20, might have been just a little older than uh, 19 then. But that was when I really started playing well. And I started really gelling on the mini tour that summer, uh, kind of almost winning, like almost most of the, some of the tournaments. And then, you know, went to the tour school and won by 14 there. And that got me out on tour. But that tournament did give me a lot of confidence to be able to play against, um, you know, some, some of the top players in Florida, a lot of the best pros in Florida, and to be able to kind of shoot a really good round the, the last day to be able to win it. So that, it helps with your confidence. That's big in golf is when you think you're good that, you know, you can talk yourself into that sometimes. I read that in the late eighties, you were struggling a little bit with your swing and Gary McCord worked with you and you guys completely retooled your backswing. Talk about the work that you and Gary put in on your swing. That was at Memphis where, you know, that was at Memphis at Southwind. Gary was doing radio or he was doing TV with CBS and I was starting to hit this, this hook, you know, it's coming in like 10 yards right to left. And that's with a nine iron and they're hitting on the greens and they're spinning left. And I'm talking to magic and I've known him. I actually, I played with him at the tour school when I won. So I'd known him since 82 and we were pretty good friends. We used to go out a little bit here and there. And he started laying me on some of this stuff that he was working with Mac O'Grady with. And it was kind of narrow stance. You're, keep your arms a little closer to your hips when you set it up, kind of roll the club a little bit on the backswing and then kind of slightly come over the ball and hit a little more on the outside of the ball so that you weren't hitting the inside of the ball, which put a lot more right to left spin on it. And he had a couple little props that we worked with and I think I might've seen him on Tuesday, but I worked on it for two or three days and I said, I'm taking it into play on Thursday, brand new, Whole, whole different swing, kind of. And I made the cut and I thought, all right, well, let's give it a go. And I ran, I'd run into Gary, you know, a couple of weeks later and he'd look at it and we'd kind of redo a couple little things here and there, but it just started getting better. And then at the end of the year, uh, I won Texas and then finished second the next week at Disney and then finished like fifth at the tour championship where I got to go up into the tower with Finn Scully. I think after the first round, which was kind of thinking about that a couple, about a week or so ago after Ben passed away. But um, I just had a really good stretch at the end of the year there. And then, you know, I played good for a couple years after that. And I'd kind of catch up with Gary along the way. And uh, he was actually then when he was using that swing on the Champions Tour, and he went out and got his first win, you know, with that with that same swing, basically. So. It was it was helpful for both of us. Okay, so you can't drop Vin Scully without telling the rest of that story. What was it like getting up in the booth with him? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was I was on a high then. I I had won Texas and finished second at Disney the next week, and I go to the uh, tour championship at Hilton Head. I think I shot like sixty seven, sixty eight the first two days, and they said, "Hey, would you like to come up in the tower?" talk about your round i said sure yeah that's kind of what you do you you go to the press room or you visit the tower do do something fun and talk about how good you were that day what's what's more fun than to talk about how great you played that day so i said sure let's go up there and vin was up there i don't think i had met him before then but 
you know, we spent some time up there and he was, you know, he was just really warm. He knew the game. And, you know, I was just sitting there thinking, holy cow, I'm sitting here with, with the legend, basically, with Ben. And, um, you know, you look back on it and you think, wow, that was, that was really a special, special day for men. Donnie, a moment ago, you talked about confidence. And th- there are a lot of guys out on the PGA and Corn Ferry Tours that have pretty swings. But having a pretty swing doesn't guarantee you anything. Talk about what it takes beyond having a good swing to be successful at the PGA Tour level. Well, I mean, I think you could look at you could look at maybe Cam Smith's game a little bit where, you know, I've been watching him play over the last three or four years and he's had he's had some great tournaments, but it just looked like you'd look at his swing and it says just looks a little whippy at the top. And he gets to the top and he gives it kind of a little hitch up there and then comes into it, but he hits just about every shot right on the right on middle of the club face. And then you see the way his short game is and the way he putts and the way he handles pressure situations. So it's not necessarily the most technical swing that's going to get it done like an Adam Scott or, you know, back in our day, it was Davis Love that had an incredible swing. And he, you know, he had everything though. He had the short game, but it's the way you manage the game and you manage the situations and, and, you know, a slight amount of luck and coincidence comes in that helps, you know, like a quarter inch here and a half inch there, or maybe getting a little help from another player. But it's, you know, managing your game, being able to putt like Cam Smith and being able to chip and then being able to do it when, when you're under the most pressure that you're going to be under all year to put that together. That's pretty much what it takes to win majors these days. It's, it's tougher than it's ever been. And you have to have everything. You can't have anything missing out there these days to, to win the big ones. And Donnie talking about pressure, not at the major level, talk about pressure with making the cut or missing the cut, because if you don't, if you don't make it right, you don't make the cut, you're not going to get paid that week. And you still have, all your expenses involved with getting in the tournament, the hotels, the food, the pay, and the caddy, and all that. How much does that weigh on you, particularly if you're going through a bad stretch, you're not playing well. Now it's you know afternoon on Friday, you're getting back to the back nine and and making the cut or missing the cut. How much does that enter your mind from the pressure perspective? Because again, if you don't make the cut, you don't get paid. Yeah, I think it, I think it affects more the younger players that come out the first year or two, maybe that have sponsors and they don't quite have the endorsement deals, like with the club company, the ball company, money for a hat, money for a patch or two on your shirt. Um, you know, you get to go play in these really nice pro-ams where they might pay you a bunch of money that, you know, so you do, once you get out there and you establish yourself, you do have a pretty good amount of income coming in that's guaranteed. So you don't really think about it that much, but early on in your career, I think it would be, uh, you'd have to be thinking about it more if the sponsor gives you 80,000 or a hundred thousand to play the tour with and the balance starts getting down a little bit and you start missing three or four cuts, not only the confidence starting to go, but then the bank account starts to get a little lower and then it, it, then it would be pressure. That's, that's not the kind of pressure that, that helps, uh, you know, shooting 68s pretty sure about that let's talk a moment about major pressure 
you know, we hear all the time in, in big events like the Super Bowl or the World Series players talk about, you know, once the ball gets kicked off, it's, it's just another football game. Or after the first pitch, it's just another baseball game. I believe you played in 28 majors. So after the initial tee shot, is the, is the major just another golf tournament? Or are you always keenly aware of the magnitude of the event? Uh, it seemed like for me, after the first couple holes, you could kind of get into it a little bit and you get back to normal. You, you're used to playing in front of big crowds. You're used to, you know, most of the tournaments on the tour seem like big tournaments. So majors are a little different. A lot of times you're playing different courses that you, you know, you're not used to playing. You maybe you've only played a couple times. So that's a little different. But after, you know, after you get over the jitters, first couple holes, you kind of ease into things. But then you get to that situation where you put yourself in contention. And on a Saturday evening, you feel fine. You're on the range. You're hitting it beautifully. Your caddy says, man, you're swinging great. Your your confidence is good. You've been up all day and you just put yourself in sixth place, two strokes back. And and then you, you know, you're really looking forward to the next day. Then you wake up and have a cup and a half of coffee. And all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh, whoa, I got to go out and I got to go out and there's going to be a lot of people watching tomorrow. And, you know, that's when it starts setting in a little bit. But like most sports, you know, the more times you get there and you put yourself in that situation, the easier it is just to look at it as another day. You're going to shoot a score. Might be a really good score. It might be fair. Might not be so great. It's going to be something. You're going to get through it. Just, just be present and, you know, commit to every shot you can and just accept what's going to happen. And that's really basically all you can do out there. You don't want to, you know, look at it, how much you could make or what you're going to say at the award ceremony. Uh, I think you do that early when you first couple of times you get that chance and then you figure out that didn't work, that strategy. So you um, try to try to be a little smarter after that. Donnie, just a couple more before I let you go. And you know, I got to get in a space question. We're getting close to the first Artemis mission and our return to the moon. For me, it's going to be like when we were kids and the Apollo missions to the moon. I'm, I'm, I'm getting excited about it. How excited me are too. you? For what? Yeah. Talk about that. I am. I'm going to go down. I'm going to watch it. Yeah. I think it's, what is it? 29th of August, I think. Right. I've been watching, I've been watching a lot of them lately over here. They've been sending them off like every six or eight days or so. And, uh, I'm excited for this one. Uh, probably go down close and get get a pretty good spot. Maybe take 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 the beagle down. He likes to he likes to go down for a launch. But I'm I'm excited about it really. But I got to ask you something though. What about uh, you know I saw Journey the concert like three months ago, and then a couple days later you went right to it in Atlanta. Yeah. Yep, we were there. Loved it. It Absolutely was awesome. Loved it. Neil yeah. Sean. Yeah. yeah. Neil Neil's Neil's my favorite. But, uh, you know, I love those guys. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of his. And on top of that, he's a really good guy. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at Neil Sean Music. What a great guy. What a great band. And as we look ahead to next year, right, 50th year, they're going to be doing a huge stadium tour and whispers in the wind of Neil and Steve talking again. And wouldn't that really be something if somehow, some way they managed to get Steve to come back and be a part of that tour. It would just be absolutely outstanding. It would it would blow the roof off every stadium that they uh, went out and uh, performed at. The well, the new album's great, too. 
and the yeah, new album. Absolutely. They got some great songs off the new album. Yeah. 100%. I saw them in college first time. It was like 70, 76 I saw them. I was like five feet down from where Neil Sean was playing the guitar. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's, that's where, you know, Steve Perry. Was, in Jacksonville? Was it in Jacksonville? Yeah, in Jacksonville. Yeah, Jacksonville Coliseum. Wow. That's awesome. Johnny, before yeah, I let you great. go, you got to update uh, our listeners on all the things that you're doing now. I'm still still loving the real estate business. I'm, I'm you know, trying to set people up all over Florida, actually. I can kind of kind of cover the whole state, whether it's Palm Beach, Naples. I have some great agents. I kind of help meet people. And, you know, if they want to buy in Orlando or Palm Beach, we kind of get together and meet. And, you know, I have a lot of information on the golf courses and the communities. I've just been having a great time. And the market is really, you know, it's still still great down here. A lot of people moving to Florida. Uh, I've been doing that. And it's, you know, it's DonnieHammond.com is the website for for me if anybody wants to come down say say hi and play golf a little bit and look at some uh, look at some homes or look at some different golf golf communities where they can play. Well Donnie, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show for a tenth time. It's always a lot of fun getting to spend time with you. I can't thank you enough. It, it's great. Drive on down for the launch. We'll head over. Yeah, I tell you what, I'm like I said, I, I'm excited. I know this first one is going to be an unmanned one. But then we start to get into the kind of the Apollo 10, Apollo 11 sort of things where we circle the moon and then actually go back and land. So I'm tickled pink. I can't wait to do it. So I, I may take you up on that, my friend. Why not? Come on down. Tony, take care. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up soon. Thanks, Chris. Nice to be with you again. Take care, Donnie. All right. Thanks. That is the great Donnie Hammond, folks, and uh, a wonderful player and a wonderful man. That's the. Uh, the thing that I love about Donnie the most is he's just such a great person. He's down to earth. You can talk to him and he, and he shares his stories and insights and tells it like it is. And, uh, on top of that, he had a wonderful playing career. And, uh, I, I keep, ha- you know, hammering on him about the great experience he had at the 1986 Masters. He was in the second to last group, uh, for that and was, had a front row seat to Jack's win there. And on top of that, had a great career in college. Again, you don't you don't get into the Jacksonville University Hall of Fame for nothing. And then winning, uh, becoming medalist and winning by 14 strokes uh, at Q School, and and then going on to a, a wonderful career on the PGA Tour. But uh, on top of that, I just think he's a great human being, and you hear it in his voice and in the way he carries himself. So thanks to Donnie for coming back and being a part of the show. Like I say, hopefully we get the privilege of catching up with him again soon. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks again to Bob Friend Jr. and Donnie Hammond for joining me tonight. Next week, scheduled to join me are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick, will be here, as will 1989 Open Championship Mark Kalkavecchia. I'll also get a return visit from John Going from Timber Trust Golf Club over in Mississippi. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you'll come back and join us and be a part of it. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podcast.co, Audioboom, Player.fm, Podbean. Folks, if you've got a favorite podcasting app, we're probably on that one, too. Just type in Next on the T in the search bar. You'll probably find us on there as well. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to see what our upcoming guest schedule looks like. 
Plus, we give you links on there to recent episodes and individual guest segments. So whether you've got 20 minutes or two hours, we've got great content on there available for you. Folks, thank you all again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I know there are a lot of great golf podcasts out there to choose from. I am very thankful that you continue to make Next on the Tee one of them for you. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.